And one of the things I think about first and foremost is that we're in the midst of a global experience. And out of that, I'm hoping that we start to recognize that we are fundamentally interconnected to each other. And if that is true, then how might we rebuild our society with that at the forefront? So that is kind of my dream for the moment, right? Can we translate this global experience into a new kind of political imagination, a new kind of consciousness that can reshape our societies? Hey, welcome to Brian Talks to Humans, a people's podcast about everyday people. Another Corona cast today for you. This episode is with a friend of mine, Jason. Jason has been a frequent companion at concerts and music festivals throughout the years. We grew up in the same town. He's a little older than I am. He uh, is in South Jersey now and teaches college in Philly. Our conversation is a little more philosophical than some of the previous Corona casts as we focus a lot on the type of society that we would like to see after this crisis is over and what it might take to build that. I enjoyed the conversation very much. It wasn't 10 years in between conversations like a couple of the other CoronaCast guests, but it had been too long since I was able to talk to Jason face-to-face. Okay, here's our conversation. I hope you enjoy. So, Jason, how are you holding up? Pretty good, uh, considering the fact that we're in the wake of a... Uh global pandemic and global crisis. Um, just trying to maintain my physical health and mental health and maintain perspective. Also recognize my own privileges that I have uh, in this situation. Um, I have a big house, big backyard, half acre, fire pit, patio. I have a park around the corner from me that no one ever goes to. I have a house full of food and supplies. So relatively speaking, compared to some people in the world, I think I'm doing uh, fairly well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there's been, other than working from home, there's been little disruption. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I'm still getting paid. Like, I still am well stocked on food and, you know, that sort of thing. I can still afford to uh, pay my bills and, you know, get my dogs walked and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's important to recognize, you know that part of it because certainly there are some people who I think uh what did I see was it was it six million eleven million something some million people are unemployed or applied for unemployment benefits recently you know yeah I saw that sometime this week I think I think it was something like six or six point six million people applied yeah Mm -hmm. so in the past couple of weeks I've just really been thinking about the amount of human suffering that's happening on this planet right now and Mm. that's been emotionally tough to deal with I try to keep perspective about it in the sense that human beings are resilient creatures. We always seem to persist in the face of tragedy and obstacles. At the same time, though, it's hard not to acknowledge uh, the suffering that's going on. You know, people can't get basic supplies, basic necessities. People are afraid to go to the medical doctor for all kinds of reasons, even though they should be going there. Even though if it's late for the coronavirus, you won't be charged. You know, I think about New York City a lot. I lived in New York for four years. I grew up uh, 25 miles from New York City, so i Jew, and a lot of friends there. And it's, when I think about the conditions of New York City, it's frightening, it's tearful, um, it's heartbreaking, um, and I just hope everything you know, turns out for the better. You know, it, yeah. takes, 
it, I hope it takes a turn for the better at some point, and then it all kind of works itself out. Mm. Yeah, the uh, you know uh, being close to the the hot spot is is certainly. I mean, again, I'm not in the city, so I'm, I don't I don't have it. You know, I'm not I'm not as fearful as I as I would be if I was if I was in the city. But certainly, I thought about how many people around here were commuting into the city in, in the couple weeks that this was kind of like around before we went on lockdown and that sort of thing, you know, and how that might be spreading around here. Cause Essex County has, has pretty high number of cases. Actually, I don't know the exact number, but we're like, we're like, I think the top County in Jersey. Um, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I'm positive. Don't quote me on that. Cause one of the good things <laughs> is that I'm avoiding a lot of mainstream news. Yeah. You know, I get, a, I get a few headlines here and there on Facebook and you know what I, what I need to know, but I'm not like watching, you know, the fucking Trump briefings or, you know, the round the clock, you know, coronavirus mm-hmm. coverage. It just, it just, I, my spirit can't handle that, you know? No, I'm in the same boat, and I actually made a conscious decision. I think it was at the start of last week to pretty much stop watching um, television news on a regular basis. It first started with me not constantly not watching Trump's conferences because it's it's a train wreck. It's ridiculous. It's misinformation. I think it's doing uh, more harm than good. So I stopped that, and about a week after that, I just realized that the news media, television media itself is affecting me in a really serious way. So I still get my headlines. Basically, I read the newspaper, you know, via online in the morning, even breakfast. I'll get the headlines throughout the day on social media. But I made a conscious effort to pretty much think about my own mind and my own energy levels. And I came to the conclusion that I'm not going to give my mind and my energy to Trump, his administration, or kind of the, the wider social forces that work here in making the the social crisis worse than it already is. Mm. So let's talk then a little bit about mental health and self-care. What are you doing in this time of pandemic, time of crisis, mm-hmm. uh, to maintain uh, as as best as possible, you know, uh, your mental health and, and take care of yourself? Well, I was already exercising on a regular basis prior to the pandemic. You know, two, three, maybe Traitor. a week. <laughs> I do it more, but I've always done it more for uh, as a stress reliever and for mental health and physical health. Mm-hmm. And so, once we were on lockdown, I tried to maintain a regular exercise routine. So, exercise in the house um, with what I can do. I'll go for a walk or a jog around the neighborhood. I also meditate on a daily basis. Um, that actually started a while back. My father passed away in 2014 and I was uh, emotionally wrecked for quite a while and one of the ways I coped uh, with that that moment of grief and, and mourning was starting to meditate and that became a daily practice and now in the wake of the pandemic I definitely meditate pretty much every morning if not more than once a day and that definitely helps I've been taking uh, I've been sleeping more not a whole lot more but you know maybe a half hour to an hour longer each morning than I normally would so rather than getting about 5.30 or 6, now it's more like 6.30 or 7. I've started thinking about self-care as a form of resistance. Mm. So if I think about the news, or in particular, let's say Trump and the Trump administration, in my mind, I envision as if 
he almost thrives on the negative energy. Right? And that's there's something about his own emotional life and his own psyche where he actually finds enjoyment in making people miserable and creating chaos. And so if that is true, then taking care of myself in the situation is a form of resistance. Now, when I say mm. that I'm not, I don't want to fool myself, like taking care of myself is not going to change the world. Right? But I think if I take care of myself, I can put out a different kind of vibe into the world. And in some small way, that vibe and that energy is making some small difference. Mm. And so I'm really trying to focus on that the past week or two. There's an Audrey Lorde quote about... Um about uh it's i'm I'm gonna butcher it i i I used it in an episode over the summer it's uh something about taking care of yourself isn't just preservation it's an act of political warfare oh because the system wants us Mm -hmm. you know to not do that Mm -hmm. and why do you think that would be like what would be the analysis of that from your perspective why the system doesn't want us to do that well, I think if if we're taking a, I mean, for lack of a better shorthand, if we're stopping to smell the roses and getting in touch with us as as whole people and as and as a communal being, then we're not in the the lane that that we're supposed to be in for for lack of a better term, the rat race. You know, capitalism is a is a pretty individualistic, I think, mode of being, and it it, it pushes us to not take a beat, you know, to be quote unquote productive and to measure our value and what we get done. When, when people are selfless, it's almost like it's an exception to the rule and that's why it's special. And we, we put it at the end of the news, like, Oh, look, this person gave their, like, because we don't do it. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think if we're, if we're getting in touch with that, you know, it's, it's, each individual creating a piece of that reimagined world that that the powers that be don't want. I don't know. Uh, does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, just to rip off of that a little bit. So I totally agree that our society at large, which capitalism plays a large part of that, but just our, the way our society is set up right now, which includes capitalism, it's really all about production for someone else, right? That yes, I, I produce something, I work hard, I may get a, a little bit or even a lot of satisfaction of, out, out of my job or what I do, but it's always in service of someone else or something else. Mm-hmm. It's never for my own self-care, my own internal wants and needs, my own psyche and emotional life. Right? And I think that's a, a, that's a cruel form of society. Right? Which then makes me think about what would self-care look like on a social level? Like, what would a society look like that actually encouraged us and taught us to care for ourselves and in return care for each other? Not once in a while, not on your birthday, not during a holiday or during a place, but literally as part of our shared culture. Mm. Now, with that, I think that changes our political imagination, both individually and collectively. Right? So I think one of the things self-care does that makes you reimagine your own personal life, right? And I think that's also what you're saying. It poses a danger now to the larger social structure. Because once we start thinking outside of, let's say, the social box we're placed in, it automatically makes us want different things. Mm-hmm. Makes us think about different things. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we start acting and behaving differently. Yeah, and so uh, we were probably talking a little bit before about what we might 
see coming out of this that you know it, it it may take a fight but but that there may be some silver linings or some re some shifting of our or a friend called it uh the other day um mental model shifting or something like that right so what what do you see that are um for lack of a better term silver linings or 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 ways that we that we're being that we can try to preserve after this is done it's an excellent question and one of the things i think about first and foremost is that we're in the midst of a global experience which is not to say that every human being is going through the pandemic and i'm definitely not saying that everyone experiences the pandemic in the same way in fact it's quite the opposite right? but we're at a certain point in the year 2020 where this phenomenon is happening around the globe and because we're so interconnected through our infrastructure whether it's social media, supply lines, mass media, et cetera, mm-hmm. there's a certain kind of global experience. And out of that, I'm hoping that we start to recognize that we are fundamentally interconnected to each other. You could talk about that on the material level, on the spiritual level, or anything in between. In fact, I would defend to my death that we are interconnected. Right? Mm-hmm. And if that is true, then how might we rebuild our society with that at the forefront? Mm-hmm. As opposed to searching, desiring, power, and individual achievements, and all about me, 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 and how can I win the rat race? Well, let's slow down for a second here, and how about we start to think about humanity as a whole, as, as a certain kind of oneness, right? And from there, like, okay, well, if that's true, what kind of social systems would we put in, put in place, right? What would mm-hmm. work look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would our relationships look like on the personal level, interpersonal level, social level, political level. So that is kind of my dream for the moment, right? Can we translate this global experience into a new kind of political imagination, a new kind of consciousness that can reshape our societies? Mm. And getting more granular, that would be things like housing is a human right, healthcare is a human right. We shouldn't do a for-profit healthcare system. We shouldn't be evicting people from homes we we should rethink education to be more humane shit like that right 100 percent. everything you said tenfold right so i'm by no means a policy wonk whatsoever and my mind works more philosophically than in terms of you know discrete actions for better or for worse but what kind of policies might we have if we thought at a global level if we thought at a human level what would our institutions look like and those are the kind of things that I'm holding onto for hope right now. Mm. But now, when we talked about this before we started, experience does not automatically translate into change, social mm-hmm. change, right? Mm-hmm. So in the wake of this pandemic, in the wake of this crisis, I think things like activism, organizing, social movements, will become even more important, right? You have to do things to create a different society, right? And so... If you've been affected, I'm saying the grand you, if you've been affected by this global crisis in, in a way that makes you rethink your experience in the world, then what can you do to change the world? Mm-hmm. Who, how can you plug into larger uh, efforts? Uh, what can you do in your own neighborhoods and communities? What politicians are you going to vote for? Right? Who are you going to vote out of office? You know, All of those things matter in terms of, of taking collective action, individual action and collective action. And I'm finding that there is some flat-footedness 
among the people that are supposed to be the most prepared for this. You know, I, I'm pretty much a communist. Went a little while without being part of a, a socialist organization, but I've gotten my toes back in the water with, with that. And I'm finding that, you know, the very people who are supposed to be prepared for a potentially revolutionary moment or, or, or who are constantly predicting the crises of capitalism and this sort of thing, when this comes around, they're moving a little slower than I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not sure what the full explanation of that is. And I, maybe since I'm not on the inside as much as, as, as I could be, I'm misjudging them, but I've been a little disappointed with mm-hmm. the quote-unquote organized left. It's a good, it's a good analysis, a good, a good observation. I guess if I, I put my, my best face out front here, I try to think about that. I think we're all taken back by this. So a month ago or six weeks ago, if I envisioned what would global revolution look like, I didn't think it would happen through a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. That was not on my horizon whatsoever. Right. And all of a sudden it hits though, and you realize, wow, this is this is not romantic. It's ugly, it's messy, it's death, it's grieving, it's mourning, right? And so I can give people a pass for right now and think like, well, we're all emotionally affected by this and no one really knows what to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Including myself. Like, you know, I'm a left-wing radical. Like I study radical social movements, I participate in radical social movements. I teach radical social movements, all of these things that I'm part of. But I'm kind of thrown for a loop right now. It's like, well, damn, I didn't see this coming. Like, what should I be doing right here and right now to prepare for a better future? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure. Because I think part of the problem, oh, I'll speak for myself, I'm scared to go outside. Like, I'm, I'm not <laughs> supposed to be go, go outside and meet people right now. Right, right, yeah. Right? And so, traditionally speaking, when you organize people, it's pretty much face-to-face. I mean, yeah, we have social media now, technologies and stuff like that, but it's still something still unique about the face-to-face communication. That's how things get done. Mm-hmm. Now what do we do? That's kind of the yeah. question I'm asking myself. Like, well, I can't do that. Yeah, I've been working with some local folks trying to set up, it's, um, I guess for lack of a better term, a mutual aid network in town, right? And it's been slow going and, and, and it takes a long time to make consensus decisions and and, and that sort of thing. But one of the things that we're struggling with at the beginning is, well, how are we reaching out to folks? Mm-hmm. Like, let's say I wanted to write a note on a piece of paper and drop it in mailboxes around the block, right? Are people going to be nervous when they see me walking up on the porch? You know, are they going to want to touch a piece of paper that someone else touched in their mailbox, right? So how do you even get to people who, whose contact information you don't know? Mm-hmm. You know, that's... It's tough. Mm-hmm. Well, something like that in terms of like problem solution, excellent example of the obstacle here. And so what if we were to put like a one page word printout into a large plastic see-through bag and that way they can wipe it off before they touch it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, like practical means like that. Yeah. Um, but that's the level that you got to go to that, in these right. times. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm getting. Like it's like, wow, we're in a different world all of a sudden. And then what do we, how do we function? How do we overcome that? Can you say a few more words though about your group? Like what, what are you guys after? What are you trying to accomplish? Um, that to me sometimes is a little more nebulous than I'd like considering we've had three Zoom calls already. And I'm not knocking the people in it. Um, right. It's just, like you said, it's, it's, a, it's uncharted territory and we're all trying to, trying to figure that out. But I think there are some people, I think, who are looking at it as a 
let's get help to those in need situation, more of an immediate thing. And I think there are some people who are looking at it as more of a longer term two way sort of mutual aid thing. Like what can you contribute and what can, what do you need? And also how can we keep this in place as a community and a neighborhood coming together after all this is over. And it's different from say an organized socialist group. It's a little more anarchisty and uh, very consensus driven. And um, I think one of the folks involved, you know, has a lot of background in, in this sort of organizing and, you know, was talking about spokes and spokes persons or so, I don't know, as like a way of organizing it, almost like they did in Occupy, you know? So there's, I think there's a little bit of that and there's a little bit of people who are like, does the senior citizen next door to me need toilet paper and how do I find that out like right now? And so there's a mix of that going on. So, so I think some of the, the I think the agenda isn't always clear. Mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting example for all kinds of reasons. One, I, first I applaud the effort and that kind of stuff is super important right now for all kinds of reasons. And if no other reason, like you said, the immediate needs of people. Right. But I think you, in some ways, in some ways, summarized the tension between a lot of radical social movements and then trying to get people, more people involved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So from my experience, whether it's a movement or a campaign or something smaller, you often have people who are much more experienced in terms of radical politics, radical history, how this whole uh, anti-authoritarian structure will, will function and work. Then you have other people, though, who just they want to help but they have no knowledge and experience with these kinds of structures. And it can be a real turnoff. They're not familiar with the language and lingo. They're not familiar with function within the structure. They might disagree with that structure. You know, and so it's like you have the left versus those who aren't necessarily left, but are, are in some ways attracted to those ideas and practices. There's a gap there, right? And then how we mend the gap was something I've been interested in for quite a long time now. Um, mm. If we're going to, if we're going to build a, a, a better world, and if that better world involves social movements and organizing activism, as we all know, you, you have to have more numbers. You have to have more people involved. They can't mm-hmm. be the five radical people changing the world. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking about how do you educate people about these kinds of things in a non-top-down model, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Because that can also come off condescending. How do you... I'm looking for the right word here. The word habituate is coming to mind. I don't like the word, but how do you habituate people into thinking in terms of alternative structures, alternative organizing models, and not just sit in the room all day and talk about this, but actually really do them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's that's important here. Yeah, and another tension that I was thinking of when when we were we were discussing self care is a tension between people who are usually seen as uh, politically active. And then the the self care folks. Mm, totally, yeah. I'm starting to see that those two worlds meld more, you know. But like, there's a lot of burnout and almost almost capitalistic, like you know, thoughts of productivity and urgency there, right? And you're not in the whole like, you know, are you processing your trauma? Right. You know, I'm starting to see those two worlds meld together a little more over the past few years. I'm starting to see people who I would consider, you know, for lack of a better shorthand, activisty, 
start to speak the language of self-care and I'm starting to see some of the self-care people be a little more activisty and and get in touch with how that is how self-preservation is warfare mm-hmm. but you know I can think of off the top of my head several people who I would consider good socialists good communists who would probably think of some of the self-care stuff as um, at best soft skills mm-hmm. you know yeah I'm thinking about my own experience over the years and I, I agree. Now, now, there are segments within the left, at least for the last few years, if not forever, that have talked about self-care as a form of political action, as a form of resistance. Sure. As I mentioned before, I think it was by Audrey Lord or something, right? Earlier? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so that's been around for a while. But again, from my personal experience, I'm not sure, I'll just use the word radicals in general, I'm not sure if radicals are used to engaging in self-care on a, on a regular basis, right? Which is problematic for all kinds of reasons. And then think about therapists and yoga teachers and things like that who are who tend to be more about self-care but have not been radicalized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then how do these two worlds come together? Because they're both super important. They both can learn from each other. Right? For sure, yeah. So if I think of an altruistic counselor or therapist who generally wants to help people, I would like to assume that they see the problems with our current society. I would like to assume that they want a better world and better society. Then how do we turn those values into actions? And then on the left side, let's say the radicals, the, the activists, how do we get them to be more self-caring? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, from my own personal experience, both for me as Jason, but also people I know, a lot of radicals have been traumatized at some point in their life. They, 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 they suffer from trauma. And that trauma, though, is then sublimated into this radical vision of a different world, which is not to reduce those radical politics to only trauma, to only the psyche. That's what I'm saying at all, right? But once you've been traumatized, you recognize there's something wrong with how we live, right? And you start to see that in other people, in society, in social structures, etc. And so I think a conversation about these kinds of things on a, on a mass scale could be very helpful. Sounds like uh, your next book. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm for the task, but I'll, I'll keep it in mind. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's that's Im- important for sure. Yeah, you know, because uh, I'm I'm gonna shout out somebody who does talk about that, okay. um, Jamila Liscott. Um, so she's a poet, activist, educator, so many things. And uh, I I had the pleasure of hearing her speak at a at a conference over the summer, and then editing a podcast episode for another podcast that that featured her mm-hmm. speaking and clips from that speech and an interview with her and that sort of thing. And one of the things she brought up, long story short, too late in her talk was that the corporate world is starting to use things like meditation and positive visualization and manifesting and and vision boarding and, you know, for capitalistic purposes, right? So it's incumbent upon us to, uh, I don't want to say reclaim it, but like if they're using it for evil we need to use it for good mm-hmm. you know no i totally agree it's like the whole mindfulness phenomenon yeah so when i say that i went through therapy for quite a few years i say that with no apology whatsoever i think every human being should take the time to see a, a therapist a good therapist and it so happened though that my therapist uh, was trained in mindfulness mm-hmm. uh, one part buddhism one part mindfulness one, mar- one part more let's say uh, western practices etc and so that was super helpful for me in terms of 
learning how to be mindful of my psyche, of my emotions, of my trigger points, etc. At the same time, though, this is reflecting what you what you've said. Mindfulness can be applied wholesale across any experience. Right? So you could be a sniper in the military and use mindfulness mm-hmm, to justify mm-hmm. the person you just murdered. Right? And that's kind of the um, the gray area of this of this this phenomenon we're talking about. Right? How do we use mindfulness therapy, psychology, psychiatry for quote unquote just purposes? Mm-hmm. And I guess just thinking out loud or thinking out off the top of my head, if we're going to espouse these kinds of practices as a form of political resistance, it should be coupled with a political analysis. So CEOs are using mindfulness to get better profits. Well, I want to wage a political analysis and explain why that is harming people. So you as a CEO, you may feel better about yourself. You can sleep now at nighttime. Meanwhile, uh, how many people in your sweatshop are being abused? How come they can't eat after even working uh, 40 or eight hours a week? Right? If you can sit there and justify that with yourself, then, then you have a problem. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dismiss that. I mean that's cruel, it's uh it's unfair, it's inhumane, and it's suffering. So getting back to the individual level for for a second, the I know sometimes it's hard to describe, but I was wondering what what you can talk about, um, what you can tell me about your your meditation practice i have tried i suck at it and like a lot of things in my life if i'm not good at it immediately like guitar or skiing or (laughs) Mm. ukulele i just give the fuck up and i don't do it even though i know i would feel better out on the other side so what is part of your practice and and how did you how did you make it a habit tough question tough in the sense of it's hard to track right um so again, like I said earlier, my father passed away in 2014. Uh, emotionally, I was a mess. Right? And it just so happened, I, that's also when I was going through therapy. I wasn't in therapy before that, but that's, I was already in therapy. And so obviously we're unpacking my grief and whatnot. And I just decided I would start meditating as a way to, to deal with my emotions. And what I found was for a few minutes every morning, I was able to find some kind of peace in the wake of my mourning and my grief. And then the more that I did that, it's, it's a practice. It's an exercise. It's a habit. And it went from a couple of minutes a day to five minutes a day. Where now I'll meditate anywhere from five minutes to an hour. And it's usually around 20 minutes. That's, that's usually how I do it. Uh, but anywhere from five, five, five minutes to 60 minutes. And the human mind, or also my mind, like everyone else, it bounces around a lot. You jump from A to Z to K to R to number mm. to whatever, right? Yeah, that's the problem I have with it is the stillness of mind. Yeah, um, And I guess... If you're just starting out, just being aware of that is the meditation, that you have a stream of thoughts that are bouncing around in your head, right? But then beneath that stream of thoughts, there's a calmness. That calmness could be spiritual. It may not be spiritual. Right? Mm-hmm. But in some ways, it doesn't matter, right? What matters for me is at least for you know, just a few seconds a day, tapping into something that is beyond my own ego. So for trying this into the things we talked about you know, the past few minutes here, the ego is pretty much a self-defense mechanism. Right? It's there to safeguard us from the world or from injury and from hurts. But there are other forces within the human condition that can take on uh, that responsibility and safeguard you. And in some ways, what I'm saying is that you don't, you don't need the ego. It is there. It serves a purpose. It can be a lot of fun. But there's something else about the human condition uh, that functions in our lives. And so when I meditate, I try to get in touch with that, whatever that may be. 
Mm. So how do we, and this is, this is just uh, me Mm -hmm. thinking out loud, not that you're an expert and you're going to answer this with a solution. But one thing that we have to recognize too, is even with the Eastern roots of a lot of the mindfulness stuff, therapy, psychiatry, is through a Western lens. The the yoga and the and the meditation, a lot of white ladies with crystals do this, right? So, and again, I don't want to erase the working class and people of color who are engaging in this and, and democratizing this practice. But I guess one thing, I just want to name that and put that on the table that like a lot of, a lot of times people have the privilege to do these practices. And I just wish that it was, it was more um, ubiquitous. For, and more accessible for more people. Well, I, I totally agree with everything you said, right? um, 100%. I think it goes back to what I said, that these practices should be tied to a political analysis. So what you just said was a political analysis. Uh, you're recognizing the value in these practices, you're also recognizing the privilege of those who can practice on a daily basis, which is not to dismiss those who aren't white, uh, upper class, etc. Right? But again, what kind of society do we have to create so that everyone, if they so choose, can engage in these kinds of practices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, yeah, that's the question, right? right? Like, systemically, what does that look like so that everybody has has the time and access? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, okay, it's hard to still what's happening now in the world. In some really strange, quote-unquote, cosmic way, this global pandemic is allowing us to think about these things. Now, having said that, I want to reiterate what you just said. That right now, right now, as we're having this conversation, there are people at grocery stores, mm-hmm. there are Uber drivers, there are people uh, conducting the trains and buses, there are doctors and nurses getting sick from the virus because they don't have the proper protections, right? Those people in this very moment aren't allowed to have this conversation, aren't allowed to think about these practices, are not thinking about political revolution, they're thinking about surviving. Right? So I'll say that for those that, are, that have the privilege with having this conversation, with having these things, having the ability to think about these things, what are we doing? How are we going to leverage our privilege to help out other human beings? Mm-hmm. Right? It's not that you have privilege. I mean, sometimes you're born with it. That's how this works, right? Once you're aware of that, then use it for the social good. Use it for the improvement of other human beings. And sometimes in the normal, you know, pre-pandemic life, the extent of that for me was you know, just trying to be a, a good teacher and teach the real history, you know, and be aware of things politically and try to spread the word a little bit politically and, you know, post thought provoking things on social media and shit like that. But at the end of the day, I was so wiped out that like, I just, all I wanted to do was watch cartoons and play on my phone and go to bed, you know. And what I'm finding is even though the work from home thing is, is complicated in that it's created in some ways more work and in some ways has taken work life and invaded my home space with it, mm-hmm. it has allowed me a little bit more of an even uh, energy level where it's not like intense and way on at work and then I crash after. It's been more even for me and I've been... I've found myself having the time and the bandwidth to take on a few more things that I might not have taken on had this not been, been happening. So I think that's kind of my way of taking the, the, the privilege that I have, you know, and the, 
the the time and the and the the stillness that this has allowed for me and trying to you know put some good into the world with it you know yeah i like that phrase of having energy be a little more even i know for myself you know my energy levels on a daily basis can swing quite radically so at 6 a.m i'm like meditating i'm all calm by 3 or 4 p.m i've been jacked up on adrenaline for six seven eight hours right and it has a toll on your body there's no doubt about that especially you do it day in and day out over years and years and years and if I think about American society, that's probably true for a lot of just workers in general, regardless of what kind of work you do. It goes back to the, the capitalist impulse to produce, consume, produce, consume, produce, consume, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'm wondering, I'm really just thinking out loud here, I'm wondering if part of the anxiety and the depression that's happening, you know, with the pandemic is that we're so used to being up and down all the time. Once we are more even, that, that itself becomes problematic in our minds. We're not sure how to handle that. Mm-hmm. That could be, remember I was saying before how I can't concentrate on, on reading and, um, and even just binging a show. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I don't know what to do with, with the, the, the stillness. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, and I get restless and kind of bored and a little frustrated that I, and mad at myself that I can't. The, the number of half-read books I have, you know, could fill a bookstore. And yeah. I can't crack any of them and sit down and, and finish any of them. Yeah. When the pandemic first broke out, I thought, oh, wow. I mean, this is horrible. I don't wish it upon anyone. But I'll have all this time to do all these products that, that I want to work on and be putting off. That's not been the case. Mm-hmm. I've been less productive in the past few weeks than I would be normally without the pandemic. Let's say pre-pandemic. And I like you, based on what you just said, I've been prone to beating myself up over this. Hackle not doing more, reading more, starting new writing projects, taking up new activist projects, etc. And part of that, I think, is healthy, like recognizing your privilege, recognizing why I'm not doing more. But I think a lot of that can be damaging. It's a global crisis. We're all freaked out. We're all uncertain about where this is going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, someone in the White House who is causing more chaos and more uncertainty than any kind of normal president would ever do. And so I think part of my orientation to the pandemic and what we're in right now is allowing myself to feel the grief, uh, to feel the uncertainty, but within a balance. Because you get lost in those emotions really quick. Yeah. Acknowledge what your subconscious is processing without getting lost into that maze of the subconscious and all the worry, all the fear, all the doubt, all, all the self-loathing. You know I mean, man, that you can, you can get lost in it real quick. And so then I guess the question becomes, how do you, how do you generally allow yourself in a healthy way to feel those emotions within having a balanced outlook about them? Mm. I don't have the answer. I don't, I, I don't have someone. Right. Yeah. And I'm not a therapist here, um, but I think that's part of the, part of the discussion part of the equation yeah and again having the the privilege to to unpack that and lay that out in front of you and reflect on that that is what is going on Mm -hmm. and how can i you know and i think folks like i've been in therapy for more than 20 years you know and i think folks who are kind of used to that you know that comes a little more a little more easily but again how do we set up a world where we're, we're all allowed to unpack things a little more. Yeah. So 
we're going to play a game. We're going to end on a light note. Okay. We're going to play a game. I've been playing it with folks ending on a light note the last couple episodes. It's called One Gotta Go. Okay. I'm going to give you four things, and one of them got to go. And I picked, other than the first one, I picked some, some ones that I think are apropos for our conversation. So, one got to go. Your bed, your bathroom, your phone, or your laptop. Oof. Wow. And one of them has to go. One of them has to go. I would probably say my bed. I could do without my bed. Um, I go camping a lot. I go to music festival a lot. I'm used to sleeping on the ground or uh, you know, outside somewhere in a tent. And so I think I can get by without my bed. The bathroom, for purely functional reasons, I don't want to get rid of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then my phone and laptop. And laptop's how I work and be productive, so to speak. And my phone's kind of the connection to people and the outside world. So those would be hard to let go. Mm. If this turns into The Walking Dead and the virus movie uh, gets worse, we may have to choose this. One got to go. Electricity, running water, grocery stores, roads. Ooh, I would say roads because um, I, can, I can at least walk somewhere. For all, personally, as an able-bodied person, I can walk somewhere uh, to a grocery store, for instance, to get food and whatnot, or to get water if I needed water or something like that. And given how we're so interconnected through our technology, electricity, I think it would freak people out that all went, went dark. And for those who aren't able to walk somewhere, I would like to think that others would do that for them to get them food and whatnot. All right. So I personally have had cancer in my family. If this is an uncomfortable question for you, my, my apologies. But one got to go. Cure for cancer, world peace, no world hunger, no climate change. Man, tough question, Brian. Tough question. I would have to go with taking away a cure for cancer. Um, okay. I've had my father pass away from cancer. I've had other family members pass away from cancer. You know, I totally sympathize with that problem. Having said that, though, if we had something like world peace, for instance, I would like to think that we would have a, a stronger scientific community that could then work uh, in collaboration and solve all kinds of problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I'm taking that kind of perspective. Yeah. And I think the other three affect, like, the entire planet. Yeah. Yep. You know? And I hate to be like, well, only this few people, but, you know. So, last one. One got to go. This is for uh, building the world after the pandemic. Free housing, free transportation, free food, free healthcare. And I have to eliminate one of those? Mm-hmm. I would probably eliminate free transportation. Okay. Thought being that food is the most necessary. Housing, again, I think is, is more necessary. You could function without traveling far, you know, with your home be fine. And then obviously free medical care, I think, is, is much more important as well. Yeah. So I would eliminate the, the free transportation. That's the one that I, was, I would pick too. Um, I said before on another episode, like, as much as I think subway should be free and our transportation system sucks. Like the other three seem like kind of like a human right. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas the transportation, okay, if that's the one I got to pay for, I'll pay for that one. Mm -hmm. And if my housing and food and healthcare are quote unquote free, then I probably have a couple more nickels for transportation. I I agree. Anything left unsaid that you want to talk about? 
I would encourage people to rethink their own uh, mental space and their own personal energy in relationship to the political leadership of our country right now. Think of it, think of it as, as a form of political health. You have mental health, physical health, but also political health. And don't give your time and energy to someone who only wants to abuse you. Don't give your time and energy to uh, a mass media that in many ways perpetuates the problems rather than seeking to solve those problems. In many ways, your mind is not your own because your mind is developed through your interactions with other human beings. At the same time, though, it is kind of your space, your place. And so think of that as a form of resistance. How can I resist through my mind and my energy levels and not giving my energy to someone who simply wants to, to sap and use that energy for his own personal political pleasure, right? Fuck Trump. Fuck the Trump administration. <laughs> fuck his uh, minions that knowingly support him, right? And, you know, take back your life and your time. And so in that light, I totally support the call that came out a couple of weeks ago for a general strike. Hashtag not dying for Wall Street, right? In many ways, we're already in the midst of a general strike, right? So then how could we use this moment to learn about the possibility of an actual general strike where we take back our time and say, fuck you to the system, right? The system doesn't care about us. It never did and never will. So hopefully this is a wake-up call and we can start getting on with the possibility of actual radical social change. That, that's great. That's what we need. That's what, that's what we got to see. Okay, so I appreciate you giving me the time, especially during this time of, uh, of weirdness, uh, during this time where, you know, reality is kind of on its head and we're, we're all trying to figure stuff out. So again, thanks for the time and uh, it's always good talking to you. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. Okay, so that was my CoronaCast conversation with Jason. You can go to BrianTalksToHumans.net for more info. Brian Talks to Humans on Facebook and at BTTHPod on Instagram. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. <laughs>